0: Warning. Homo sapiens have existed for at least 200,000 years, but for most of that time we have next to no idea what was happening. Most of human history is irreparably lost to us. When we keep this in mind, we can see clearly that even when a study is rigorous in every other respect, When it begins from unexamined assumptions about some singular, original form of human society and that its nature was either fundamentally good or evil, or that participatory democracy is natural in small groups but can't possibly scale up to anything like a city or nation state, we know then that we are in the presence of myths.
1: You're seriously wrong you're seriously wrong You're seriously wrong. Seriously.
0: and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. My name is Aaron, and this is Sean. Today's
2: episode, we're joined by David Wengro, author of the book What Makes Civilization, and professor of comparative archaeology to talk about his new book with the late David Graeber, The Dawn of Everything. So as we all probably know, unfortunately, we lost David Graeber last year, which is a really hard loss for the contemporary left and anarchism as hard for me. I really looked up to the guy and admired him. And he came on the show to talk about his book, Bullshit Jobs, and he was just like the nicest guy ever. David Graeber was a brilliant, continually insightful, and challenging writer we admired really greatly. And for that reason, we're both pouring out a little bit of a kombucha for him today.
0: David Wengro is an archaeologist, and David Graeber an anthropologist, and this book is an interdisciplinary look at the standard myths of the origin of humanity.
2: This is a huge, epic book, and its scope is a lot bigger than we could cover in a typical episode of Seriously Wrong, although we've done our best. It's out on the 19th of October in Europe and Canada and November 9th in the United States. You've got a link in the description for where you can pre-order it or buy it. And overall, I guess I'd say our review is that it's very good. It's a good book. We highly recommend it.
0: It's so good that we had to invent a new rating system in order to express how much we like it. It's a bit different than your traditional rating system. It uses thumbs, and thumbs, when they're pointed down in this system, is good, and when they're pointed up is bad. So we're giving this book four, because we're two people, four thumbs, four thumbs down. That's the best possible rating we could give. Yeah, it's a huge rating. It's and we big. thought
2: we should probably break with the tradition. You know, you might be familiar with other thumb-based rating systems. They have their origins, you know, in ancient Rome, which is a slave-holding society. We just want to break with that entirely, set out our own new path, have a little bit of imagination, a little playfulness, a little bit of quirkiness. And we settled on this, the thumbs down equals good system. And then we gave the book the rating four out of four thumbs down, brackets, good. So yeah, we trust that to not be confusing for anybody. And welcome, welcome to our episode, the dawn of the dawn of everything.
0: Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by pointing a gun at someone to enforce your political order, and then also telling them to say that your political order is natural and it evolved naturally. Hey, tell them the real story, the one we talked about. Oh, yeah, I just making a mistake. Uh, today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by the inexorable march of technological progress, where some political orders win out in the sort of Darwinist way, and the bigger your society gets, the more evil and bureaucratic it must become in order to, to function. Right, and tell them the other part. Right, right. And the people who happen to have the guns also happen to be right. So, it's impossible for their political order to change, and anytime you get a big society, it gets like that. I'm the sponsor of today's show.
1: We are
2: joined now by David Wengrow, one of the authors of The Dawn of Everything. Thanks
0: for coming on the show.
3: Thank you for having me on. I think it's very fitting, the first podcast I do, because this is the first one I'm doing about this particular book, The Dawn of Everything, is yours, because there is something seriously wrong about the way we tell the story of our species' history. So, you know, it couldn't be more personal. (laughs) For a while, we just called it the Everything is Wrong book. (laughs) Everything you know is wrong. So,
2: there's this question of, what is the origin of inequality? Um, and in your book, you do something really interesting, is you actually talk about the origin of the origin of inequality. Where did this idea come from that there is an origin to inequality? Why do we think that?
3: Maybe before we get on to how the story of human history became about the origins of inequality, maybe it's worth just laying out the seriously wrong picture of human history that we have, just in its basics. I guess it would go something like this. We as a species originated in egalitarian hunter-gatherer bands and then somehow fell from grace into inequality. Uh, So in this familiar story, small is supposed to mean egalitarian. Big is meant to mean hierarchical. And because there are, what, 8 billion people or so on the planet, uh, the basic message is that we're all fundamentally doomed. And what we show in the book, in The Dawn of Everything, is that really all the assumptions which underpin that familiar story are scientifically wrong. And unlike some other people who write these big history books, this is kind of what we do. Uh, David Graeber was a professor of anthropology. I'm a professor of archaeology. But the problem is a lot of people, including some very well-meaning and very smart people, really don't want to know. We want the myth to be true. I think in a way, we live in this very unequal world and the familiar story seems to hold out a candle almost for our innate goodness. You know, if once upon a time we all lived in egalitarian societies, maybe we can somehow do it again. It's never quite clear how. And people will go to amazing lengths to ignore or deny all the evidence to the contrary. So it's definitely worth looking into the origins of the question of the origins of inequality, while recognizing that in no way does the kind of evidence that we have today about what actually happened in human history really fit that conventional story. Do you know the parable about the no true Scotsman? And there's kind of an equivalent for hunter-gatherers. So when you have evidence of hunter-gatherers doing things that clearly are not very egalitarian, keeping slaves, worshipping kings, having sophisticated systems of land tenure, the standard response is, oh, but they aren't real hunter-gatherers, you know, they're not true hunter-gatherers.
2: Or oh, yeah, they're complex hunter-gatherers.
3: Yeah, or affluent hunter-gatherers, or, you know, maybe there's something weird about them, maybe they eat too much fish, or they're living in the wrong kind of environment, you know, it's, it all gets a bit silly. Especially when you look at the actual evidence for what human societies were like before the dawn of agriculture, what you see is not this drab picture of little egalitarian bands. Uh, What archaeology shows you is something more like a kind of carnival parade of different political forms and experiments. Ice Age Europe, we have people buried like kings and queens long before you actually have anything like monarchy or aristocracy it's just the burial. So what's up with that? In the Americas, we have these massive public arenas like Poverty Point in Louisiana, three and a half thousand years ago, where hunter-gatherers were gathering in their thousands. We have cases of slavery being adopted and then abolished by people who at no point in their history practiced agriculture. So we're a million miles away from, I think, what most people actually have in their heads, when they think about the broad sweep of human history. And there is so much wrong that I couldn't keep it in my own head. So I've put notes scattered about everywhere.
2: When I think about hunter-gatherers both establishing and then abolishing slavery, Mm. in the very typical like sort of stagist view, there's like this weird implicit evolutionary assumption that slavery Mm -hmm. is something that's evolved. And then if you get sufficiently advanced, maybe after agriculture or something like that, you could have an enlightenment and then figure out that slavery is wrong or something like that. But then you have examples that just completely sort of like rip up the standard teleological map. Exactly.
3: Exactly. The wrong version of history I've been talking about so far is actually one of two alternative equally wrong stories, which have been available up to now. Both of them were invented by European philosophers in the 17th and 18th centuries. The One I've been talking about, how we started in innocence and fell into inequality, is, of course, the story that Jean-Jacques Rousseau told in his second discourse on the origins of inequality, But there's another one which is also still quite popular, and it starts even earlier with uh, Thomas Hobbes. And this one says, we still begin in tiny bands of hunter-gatherers, but they weren't nice at all. Uh, In fact, they're very nasty and brutish and competitive, and it's only by taming those basic instincts that we achieve civilization. And what they mean by taming in this version of the story is basically inventing the state inventing top-down systems of control. So whichever wrong version you choose, uh, Hobbes or Rousseau, you still end up feeling that what history has ordained for you and your children, as George Orwell put it, uh, is basically a boot stamping on a human face forever. So just get used to it. Another thing we do in the book, which you mentioned is try to explain how these myths actually came into being, which turns out to be a really fascinating story. And a lot of it actually takes place in Canada and what Europeans back in the 17th century called New France. So that's basically the Great Lakes region south into what's now upstate New York. And Europeans encountered indigenous societies, mainly Iroquoian-speaking groups like the Huron-Wendat in that area, who at the time enjoyed social freedoms that were unheard of in Europe. And word got out via travelers' tales and missionary relations. And these accounts became incredibly popular and influential in Europe. So before you know it, some people are getting very excited about the possibilities, but other people are getting a bit worried. And the worried people, for example, the physiocrat economist ARJ Thirgo, he comes up with a very clever way of neutralizing all these stories. This is going to get us back to the origins of the origins of inequality. How to neutralize all these stories about how it might actually be possible for us to live differently Maybe we could have uh, women's rights. Maybe having more wealth than somebody else doesn't necessarily give you any power over them. Maybe we don't have to have cities full of people who are homeless and destitute. And basically what Go does in a series of important essays on world history is to flip the whole thing on its head to say, well, the only reason these Native American societies uh, can have all these freedoms is not because they were superior to us. It's because they were inferior, he claims, by which he largely means Inferior in a technological sense, having less material goods, having less capacity to alter the environment, that kind of thing. And actually, this is how our whole story about human history as a series of technological stages actually originates. It's all part of this quite conservative, reactionary counter reaction against what we call in the book the indigenous critique of European culture. Suddenly, all that matters is whether people are classified as hunters or farmers or urban commercial types. And often they don't even get the classifications right. So the Wendat here on end up being characterized as savage hunter-gatherers, although they'd actually farmed crops for centuries because it gives conservative thinkers in Europe a way of saying, well, yes, they can have these social freedoms, but it's only because they don't wear clothes and they basically live in this primitive world that no rational person would ever want to go back to, even if we could. So this is partly how a debate about freedom kind of morphs into a whole story about the origins of inequality. And it's partly Rousseau in that famous essay. What he does is really fascinating. He kind of merges elements of the indigenous critique with its love of social freedoms together with that new scheme of technological evolution, social evolution, which is getting very fashionable in educated circles at the time. And this is how you end up with uh, what we've got now, which is this kind of ambivalent story of civilization, where with every new advance, every new stage, the origins of agriculture, the origins of cities, humanity is supposed to have to lose freedoms, sacrifice freedoms with every step along the way. So this, in a nutshell, I guess, is the, what we see as the origins of the question about the origins of inequality.
0: It makes a lot of sense that that narrative, tying our technological progress as a species to the sort of state of inequality and the types of social relationships we can have, does such a massive benefit to conservative thinkers who want to say that Ooh. even if this hasn't always been inevitable, it's inevitable now, unless we want to give up all this great stuff, Mm -hmm. rather than the more complex view that like these struggles between domination and more egalitarian ways of organizing social relationships are things that we've been Mm -hmm. dealing with forever. And we've had many different versions of regardless Mm -hmm. of the technological state at the time.
3: And another thing to remember is we're
0: talking about the 18th
3: century. So, this is before you've got kind of hard biological Basically, racist categories of people. Cultural boundaries are more permeable in some ways. And there's no particular reason why opinions expressed by indigenous people in North America wouldn't have a huge impact on industrialized societies in Europe, that's a relationship of hierarchy that had to be created and and constructed. So that, you know, by the end of the process, we find ourselves in a situation where if people feel there's anything they can learn, from indigenous societies, then it must be something to do with how we lived long ago in some, you know, remote epoch of our species, uh, as opposed to what we find in the 17th and early 18th century, which is that actually the opinions expressed in the Jesuit relations and in travelers' accounts like that of the baron Lahontan were really uh, considered important in European intellectual circles. And they realised that actually in many ways, the groups, the societies being described in the Americas were miles ahead of us, certainly in terms of things we'd consider important today, like gender rights, care for the environment, democracy. So to reverse that polarity, I think, really took an enormous uh, kind of concentrated effort. And we're we're still kind of trying to square that circle, I think, in, in the way that we approach human history.
0: And now it's time for Wrong Boy's Children's Story Hour.
2: Hello, children. Hi.
0: Hi, kids. Hey.
2: Today we're going to be telling the story of the revolt at Teotihuacan. Yeah. All right, calm down. Otherwise, we won't be able to tell the story. We know it's exciting. And we know it's everyone's favorite. We'll probably be asking your parents to hear this later.
0: Okay, let's begin. Once upon a time, there was a place called Teotihuacan. Between 50 and 200 AD, it was a growing city structured around the building of monuments like pyramids. Religiously motivated human sacrifice seems to have been part of the process of building their pyramids and temples.
2: And what we'd expect to see next in the archaeological records from other similar sites is a concentration of power around the city's focal monuments with the building of luxurious palaces inhabited by the wealthy and privileged rulers, with attached quarters for elite kinsmen, and the development of monumental art to glorify their military conquests. But instead, that's not what we find in the archaeological
0: record. Instead, it looks like the people of Teotihuacan chose a different path. Now, it's hard to guess exactly what happened, but this is what we know. Starting around 300 AD, the religious temples were desecrated, looted, and set on fire.
2: At this time, pyramid construction and human sacrifice entirely stop, And instead, the people of Teotihuacan started to build standardized housing, 650 square foot apartments in high quantities. And René Millon, the archaeologist responsible for producing the first detailed map of the city, proposed the theory that these apartments were an enormous project of social housing.
0: So what it seems like is that these people seem to have run their masters out of town, smashed and looted the temples of the dominant class, and then started a bold social project to end homelessness.
2: They also painted psychedelic murals, which depicted, among other things, people eating flowers that make rainbows shoot out of their heads.
0: <laughs> you like that one, because seems pretty cool to me, too. And then after that, the city seems to have continued on for hundreds of years without any top-down leadership, instead being self-managed by confederated community assemblies. That's what it seems like. This is a story
2: that perhaps someday, with the hindsight and biases of our future utopian society, will be seen as an early and striking example of revolutionary democratic confederalism. Now it's hard to predict the future, but I think that's the way we're going to see it. Because of course, Any sort of archaeological look into the past is always going to be tainted by the biases of the present. In the future, the biases will be positively utopian.
0: That's it. The end. Hey, yeah, it was a great story, Uh, you kids. It's a pleasure to read for you, too. Next time on
2: Wrong Storytime, we'll be telling the story of the direct democracy on pirate ships. So you're going to want to stick with us. Seriously Wrong is a utopian comedy podcast that is made possible with the contributions of listeners like you. If you join our Patreon with that sweet 6, the $6 a month, give you access to bonus episodes, our Discord server, and a warm feeling in your heart knowing that without you, Seriously Wrong couldn't exist. So if you like Seriously Wrong, that should be a pretty good
0: feeling. Yeah, and if you don't like Seriously Wrong then it might not be a good feeling, but we would argue that you should still donate to the Patreon to help Seriously Wrong keep going. Absolutely. Even if you don't like it. That's our opinion. That's what our research has led us to believe. And
2: if people are saying, oh, you're biased, you benefit from that, then actually I would correct a real natural bias, because we're such naturally humble guys, is to encourage people not to donate. But we took a step back. We tried to look at this really objectively. We tried to think about what was best for everyone and best for society. And we came to this conclusion that even people who don't like Seriously Wrong should
0: donate to it.
2: And that's just, that's an objective, that's sort of...
0: Absolutely, and it's a lesson to anyone out there who's worried you might be biased about something, just think about it yourself more, and then you get over the bias, just like we did with this, so please donate. Now,
2: on with the show.
0: We now go to a very serious professor giving an important presentation on the real reasons behind early human decision-making. Professor, just a quick question. Why did the people in this
2: region make decisions to have slaves, but their neighbors abolished slavery and had more egalitarian relations? What accounts for that difference?
0: Good question, good question, and a tricky one, too. So we don't know for sure, yet, but we do know that it has some sort of material basis, obviously. So perhaps one speculation is that the egalitarian society were foragers who lived on berries and small game, so were able to remain innocent. And the ones with slaves, maybe they just ate a bit too much fish.
1: Gee, brilliant.
2: That's a theory in history. Uh, Follow-up question, with all due respect... Both of those groups lived in really similar bioregions, and the egalitarians definitely had the option to eat as much fish as they wanted. Considering there's no known material reason for that discrepancy, shouldn't we look for a simpler explanation, like maybe the interests of a slaveholding proto-aristocracy, won out of political dispute in one region but not another, or just maybe the differentiation of free political life more broadly?
0: Stupid! (laughs) Get out of here, loser! Now, 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 please, please, this is a fair question, and, you know, I'm not afraid of some inquiry. To answer, absolutely not. You know, that's the kind of explanation that I would put an asterisk next to until I had a real reason discovered. Not this kind of nonsense where people just up and decide things for themselves. And I have faith that one day, a real reason will be discovered. Some sort of environmental or teleological determinism. A proper explanation. Amazing. That's why he's the professor.
2: Found this aspect so fascinating that there could be this sort of like twin legacy of the indigenous critique of European society, where at once some of the ideas are incorporated and become influential to the Enlightenment, at the same time creating this Reaction where they have to invent this sort of like meta narrative mm-hmm. about human society to say, like, you can't take it seriously because they don't farm the way that we expect them to.
3: This is how, for example, the agricultural revolution appears on the sea as this great turning point in human history. And that hasn't changed. I mean, if you pick up more or less any popular science book on the big picture of world history, you're going to find a chapter or even most of the book devoted to something called the Agricultural Revolution. And that now, speaking here as as an archaeologist with something of a specialism in prehistoric societies, that notion of the agricultural revolution really belongs or ought to belong to the seriously wrong version of world history. You know, that's what's supposed to separate us from all these other people, It's this agricultural revolution. But actually, we have very detailed evidence these days for how the domestication of crops and animals took place in various parts of the world. I think uh, we're up to about 15 different independent centers of domestication that have now been documented. And in no sense, we can say now, in no sense was this a revolutionary Process. First of all, the the biological process of domestication for most crops took something in the order of 3,000 years. complete. That's that's kind of long. This wasn't like uh,
2: Alexander Graham Bell running down the stairs, I've invented farming, I've invented farming, and then everyone just reorganizes into a hierarchical society.
3: And then it's not because people at the time, prehistoric people, were confused or incompetent. Actually, it's completely the opposite. They were the experts in manipulating wild plants and so on. They've been doing it for tens and hundreds of thousands of years. And clearly, they took the measure of agriculture and for a very long time decided not to go the whole way. We call it play farming in the book. The more technical term in the anthropological literature is low-level food production. It's where you raise crops on a small scale, but you also keep going with the hunting and the fishing, the, the foraging. And this kind of flexibility seems to have been common to a lot of the world societies for thousands of years, everywhere from Mesoamerica to China. The fun thing about all this is that we know from controlled experiments, which were actually done by a former colleague of mine, an archaeobotanist in London called Gordon Hillman, that if they would wanted to domesticate crops the way that an agricultural revolution would have hypothetically happened, they could have done it so much quicker. Actually, it would only take about 50 years if you really wanted to. But people chose not to do it that way, which is why the standard story of the agricultural revolution is so very, what's the word, wrong. You know, there's that line about how uh, we didn't domesticate wheat, but wheat domesticated us and it made us go and fetch water and clear all the stones out of the fields and bloody, bloody, blah. And, you know, it's fun to think about, but it's also kind of silly. I mean, we are large-brained, intelligent primates and wheat is kind of uh, grass. You know, I mean, it's a myth. It never happened that way. And obviously, if there was no agricultural revolution, then it goes without saying that there was no fall from egalitarian grace into inequality to go along with it. And actually, if we look at the archaeological evidence for the first farming societies, you see a whole range of possibilities in different parts of the world. Some of them are quite hierarchical, some of them aren't, some are quite violent, there's warfare, others aren't. The mere fact that they possess domestic crops and animals, that doesn't in itself seem to be a key factor determining what kind of social structures they build. Another thing we can be pretty sure of these days is there was definitely no Edison moment or epoch-making moment like the one that, that Rousseau imagined, when, you know, the first farmer comes along, marks out a piece of territory and says, right, this is now mine, and then you're supposed to get the birth of private property and inequality is supposed to grow from that. Actually, it's quite funny because if somebody in the Neolithic period had done that, I think most of his friends would have thought he was was a bit of an idiot because Neolithic farming systems just didn't work that way. Uh, There weren't really large field systems the way we think of agriculture now. Actually, most Neolithic crops were grown on the banks of rivers or the margins of lakes, basically on seasonally flooded land. So the bit that you enclosed one year would probably be flooded or dried out the next. So, aha, you know, you're standing there in your puddle with your little fence going, this is mine. I mean, the basic point is that people who come up with grand theories of social evolution aren't always aware of the practicalities of things like Neolithic farming, which is why we felt it's important for us as archaeologists, anthropologists, to engage with these bigger questions.
2: Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by... Knowing about agriculture, but deciding not to
0: do it. Hey, neighbor. You know that agriculture thing we've been playing around with? Oh, yeah, yeah, like planting stuff to eat? Yeah, it seems all right. I got an idea. I'm just running this by you. Why don't we stop all of our fishing, hunting, and foraging, you know, in this extremely fecund and abundant area? And instead, find some place to plant a whole bunch of crops just to eat as our lifestyle. You know, we could spend all day planting way more than we'll ever need, and we could store it all up. Doesn't that sound super advanced? <laughs> what?
2: <laughs> Dude, <laughs> you're joking, right? Like,
0: <laughs> why would you want to spend all day planting? No, I'm serious. And I mean, sometimes we would spend all day harvesting, too. So. Yeah, the,
2: look, the, the land provides everything we need and more. We eat well, we all have what we want. Why would we switch lifestyles to something that's harder when our needs
0: are already met? So that we can move forward in history, shake off the shackles of the state of nature and triumphantly conquer the land, conquer the foodstuffs and build complex hierarchical societies. It's our human destiny. What? (laughs) Uh, You're a real kook, you know that? How much fish have you been eating? I don't think it's been that much fish.
2: History doesn't move in one direction. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean... Look, you're a lovable, eccentric little kook, and that's why we all love you. And if you want to disobey orders, go try out some agriculture, be my guest. But honestly, I think it's a bad idea.
0: Uh, Well, I mean, it's no fun by myself. I guess I understand where you're coming from. Okay, fine, let's decide not to do it. Yeah, let's decide not to do it. Sounds great. Knowing about
2: agriculture, but for various reasons, deciding not to do it in certain contexts. Proud sponsor of today's show. One thing that I remember from the book, A Detail Around the Domestication of Wheat, was that the process of domestication of wheat, there's a theory that the way that it happened was because people were actually using wheat for straw to make baskets and things like that. And it was through the process of pulling straw that they actually created this sort of side effect of removing this part of the wheat that allowed it to be like used for domestic use. That was something I found really fascinating to think about.
3: That's a theory I can't take credit for. It was actually uh, developed by a colleague of mine, a very brilliant uh, prehistorian called Darian Fuller uh, and his colleagues. And um, the science on this stuff is so good now. I think people don't generally realize like the level of detail and the chronological control that you can have over some of these questions these days in archaeology. And uh, that's right. I mean, we tend to think of the you know the straw as a byproduct of farming. But actually, it's integral to all kinds of technologies mixed in with clay to build houses and ovens, not pottery, interestingly, to begin with, at least uh, in the Middle East. But yes, there, there, there is an argument to be made that
2: looking at sort of like the big picture of if it, if it's the wrong question to ask, like, where does inequality come into the picture then what is the right question to ask like how can we think about early human development and cultural development through a different lens
3: well One of the patterns that really struck us as we began working through the traditional kind of thresholds of human history, the origins of farming, the origins of cities, the origins of the state, and one by one realizing that none of the conventional explanations really work at all, has to do with this issue of scale, the relationship between forms of inequality and scale, as in numbers of people, sizes of populations, density of populations, and the kind of pattern that emerged, and it becomes a, a recurrent theme in the dawn of everything is that actually the most stubborn and insidious forms of inequality don't begin uh, at the large scale, but actually at the most private and intimate level of human relationships, things like family relations, gender relations, age groups, domestic servitude. Uh, Actually, in the broad sweep of human history, based on the evidence that's now available, egalitarian cities and even kind of regional confederacies are surprisingly common. Egalitarian families, egalitarian households are not. So I think there's a very important clue there about why we've been looking in the wrong place. I mean, actually, I think this is one of the most stubborn misconceptions about human history, and it finds its way into so many different areas of life and thought, you know, everything from evolutionary psychology to theories of work and organization, basically this idea that Once human societies scale up above a certain threshold, hierarchy is kind of inevitable. And the basic idea is that we're living in a modern world, but still with these hunter-gatherer brains, right? So supposedly we 're not really wired for it, and that 's why we need all these institutional hierarchies and these top down management structures just to cope with all the you know the weird flows of information that hold it all together, otherwise chaos or anarchy as some conservative thinkers wrongly uh, call it. but the obvious question here you know the elephant in the room, if you like, is what exactly do we mean? by hunter-gatherer brains. Actually, if you look at the latest studies in the Journal of Human Evolution, for instance, they completely blow this idea to pieces that our brains are adapted to living these tiny insular groups, Actually, what they show is that modern hunter gatherers don't do this. They don't live in small scale societies at all. So, in Australia, uh, in the Western Desert, or in the Kalahari, for example, they actually form these networks across very large territories, way beyond your immediate circle of family, even beyond your language groups. Potentially, they can involve thousands of people. Of course, in practice, that doesn't happen very often, maybe not at all. But remember, the argument is about human cognition. It's about the human brain. So what matters here from an evolutionary standpoint is that members of these apparently small-scale societies hold in their minds an image of a much more complex and extended social system, which can be brought into play on particular occasions, uh, weddings, festivals, feasts, whatever it may be. And archaeology bears this out. So what we see in prehistory before cities, is not these isolated pockets of human populations. What we actually see is what used to be called culture areas. Today, uh, archaeologists prefer more scientific terms like interaction spheres. Basically, they're these kind of grand coalitions of small societies, but they form these networks, and they can be vast. You know, they span continents, They share forms of ritual, uh, forms of hospitality. So when cities do begin to form in various parts of the world from about 5,000 years ago onwards, actually, it often looks like a process of contraction, one of these great regional systems becoming concentrated in a single spot. So there's none of this kind of great psychological rupture that would have forced people to set up kings and bureaucrats and so on. The argument simply doesn't add up. And actually, our whole picture of the rise of the world's first cities has changed very radically over the last 20 or 30 years. We know now that there were many more of them in different parts of the world. We know now that many of them were already there long before you have kingdoms or empires. And what's really intriguing is that there's no single pattern to these early cities in terms of organization. Actually, one of the really striking things that we comment on in the book is the significant number of them, not all of them, by any means, but a significant number, were organized on what appear to be robustly egalitarian lines. I could give you any number of examples from uh, South Asia, Eastern Europe, or the Americas, where you have what by general consent are cities with no evidence of things like monarchy or central administration, or even marked uh, inequalities of wealth.
2: Isn't the conventional sort of definition of cities in contrast to that? Like, isn't it the old style way of defining a city Mm. is like the establishment of a hierarchy is one of the qualitative features?
3: It's true. It's it's actually I find this really interesting at the moment because you know you're probably aware there's all this chat at the moment about reimagining the future of cities. I mean, in a way, the future of the planet depends on it because most of us live in cities these days. A lot of that seems to be about creating some kind of notion of a decentered city. So you know there are lots of buzzwords around like fifteen-minute city, uh, proximity city. Uh, forget you know, and we actually got the digital and other technologies in theory these days to make that work on a large, on a modern demographic scale. What we don't have so far, I think, is the kind of social imagination to picture what that kind of city would actually be like, and, and in whose interests would it function? Would it be for the few? Would it be for the many? So it's kind of fascinating that while people are hypothesizing about all these different ways of having cities in the future, Under our feet, uh, archaeologists are actually coming up with this enormous variety of actual urban forms that people created and lived in for hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years, that don't fit that kind of, you know, you're right, it's a kind of stereotypical picture that the proto-city is the megalopolis with whatever the ancient equivalent of a financial district was, you know, a bunch of palaces or temples or whatever it may be. It's not true. There are lots of other models and possibilities for urban life. You've got, in the archaeological record now, you've got proto-garden cities and uh, proto-versions of what they're trying in Barcelona with what they call superblocks, you know, where they block out like a bunch of residential blocks, council housing, that sort of thing. And they pedestrianize the bit in the middle, so you create a kind of unit within the city. I think they call them superblocks or megablocks.
2: We now go to two friends talking on a train about the myth of the myth of the noble savage.
0: Hey, train
2: buddy. Hey, saved you a seat. Good to see you, how was work today?
0: Same old, same old, doing useless stuff that probably doesn't need to be done. (laughs) Oh yeah, capitalist modernity in a nutshell. At least you got out of the really humiliating tier of jobs, right? Oh yeah, it's still soul crushing, but it was much more so before. So I'm thankful for that in a relative sense. You were telling me last time about the origin of the noble savage trope and that it actually came from a racist group or something. What was that? Can you tell me that Yeah, and so in the
2: 1850s, there was, like, this clique of racists that took over the British Ethnological Society. They're the first people to have used the term noble savage as, like, a term of derision. So, like, we typically associate it with, like, a left-wing critique of removing agency from indigenous people by treating individual indigenous people as, like, magical, or treating
0: indigenous societies as magically good and without any complexity. Kind of imagine like a white hippie with dreads being like dude we need to live like the tribal people of the past did you know like kind of oversimplifying real human cultures that obviously have a bunch of complexity kind of like benevolent sexism where it's not that you are putting women down explicitly you're like treating them like delicate perfect flowers in need of protection so you kind of dehumanize them in a different way. But yeah, the origin is like actually from racists taking over, like like explicit racists. Yeah, they advocated for the extermination of so-called inferior people. This argument
2: was used to say basically that the indigenous societies in contemporary times of the 1700s and 1800s were not peers on the world stage, indigenous cultures and European cultures. You know, This is a time period where these are societies that were being interacted with by the Europeans, that they were actively doing trade with, doing cultural exchange with. I know, it's a real mind ripple because the European tradition pretended that it wasn't in dialogue.
0: Yeah, I was reading about all these travelers and thinkers at the time publishing these dialogues that they had with indigenous people, oftentimes with weird, archaic, racist names, like this one by the Baron de la Hontan called Curious Dialogues with a Savage of Good Sense Who Has Traveled. It's like this bizarre, oh, good sense. He's traveled. Traveling gives good sense. And it inspires, among other things, a long-running theatrical production. So, you know, like this was a big thing. A whole bunch of other people are coming out with variations on this idea. And some of these dialogues
2: were fictionalized, but a lot of them were explicitly by the author's account, based on real conversations that they had in the New World or in Europe with people from indigenous societies. And I think overall, this narrative is really compelling when you look at the timeline. The dialogue that you were just mentioning, published at the beginning of the 18th century. When does the Enlightenment start? The beginning of the 18th century. And these indigenous critiques of European society were like really popular with the intellectuals in Europe. For example, the Wendat leader, Ronk. he said, I spent six years reflecting on the state of European society and I still can't think of a single way they act that's not inhuman. And I genuinely think this can only be the case as long as you stick to your distinctions of mine and thine. I affirm that what you call money is the devil of devils, the tyrant of the French, the source of all evils, the bane of souls, and the slaughterhouse of the living. This isn't a guy that was just made up for this fictional dialogue. People said that he was the smartest person that they'd ever met. Uh, And it makes sense because in Wendat society in the Great Lakes, the charisma and well-spokenness of leadership was how leadership worked. There was no control of information. There was no threat of violence. So people like Candy Ronk needed to be well-spoken. Otherwise, people wouldn't listen to them. The sort of Western exceptionalism that says that the Enlightenment is this unique product of European intellectuals seems not just ridiculous, but like an act of intellectual theft. It took place over generations. I mean, the people at the beginning of the 18th century, if you told them that these were actually European ideas being put in the mouths of indigenous people, they'd find that idea ridiculous. Because Kandiyarak visited Europe. People met and spoke with him. They debated him. And then they recorded it.
0: Yeah. And I mean, we want to make sure not to just like deifying indigenous cultures, but at the same time, there's also a sense in which this idea of the noble savage myth can be used to put down attempts to draw lessons and inspirations from indigenous societies that we know about from history or that still exist this presumption that it must be white people projecting their ideas onto indigenous people rather than white people stealing the ideas from indigenous people. You know, I don't believe in intellectual property necessarily, but I do believe that credit should be given where credit is due. Like, there's this example of this city-state in central Mexico during colonization called Tlaxcala. And this Spanish explorer, I should say Spanish colonist, Cortez is going around and like at this point has experience identifying the kings in this Mesoamerican context where he is and like recruiting them to his cause or neutralizing them. When he arrives in Tlaxcala, which he estimates a total population of 150,000 people, like it's a big city. To quote him, he notes that the order of government so far observed resembles very much the republics of Venice, Genoa, and Pisa, and there's no supreme overlord. This gets dismissed as him just kind of like projecting this idea of a republic onto this city-state, presuming that they are like Venice or Genoa, that they have these republican systems going on. But like, there's descriptions of him engaging with representatives of a popular urban council whose every decision had to be collectively ratified. And we even have accounts that were written in the decades after based on the accounts of native leaders who survived that conquest and their immediate descendants saying that when Cortez arrived in the city, there was a discussion among the city's four senior justices, who sometimes accounts mistakenly refer to as kings, but as far as we know, they weren't kings, they're senior justices. They're having a debate about what to do, whether to welcome him in or to attack. It's a fierce debate, and it's written again as a dialogue between these different factions. And the synthesis they arrive at is attack him, ambush them with a contingent of Atomi warriors, but if it doesn't work out and they beat us, we'll just say, oh, it was just the uncouth and impulsive Atomi who just, you know, went after you, sorry about that, come in, we'll we'll work things out. But, like, all this history kind of gets dismissed as the fantasies of Western people projecting the idea that these indigenous cultures might have been having political discussions and debates about how to run their republic and not just a top-down authoritarian system, which is presumed from this sort of like determinism of big cities equals hierarchy. And yeah, this idea, this general critique of the myth of the noble savage ends up getting used to deny different cultures from history, actual agency and deny their history because there's this presumption that it's all a fantasy projection of the Europeans who wrote about it even though Cortez didn't come from a society that was a practicing republic, he came from a monarchy, like most of Europe at the time is monarchies. To say that it's a projection of their own European democratic ideas when those ideas weren't super popular at the time, like this is even before the Enlightenment, this is like Renaissance 1500s stuff.
2: Right, and then like the kind of typical narrative on this is that somehow Europeans were projecting Enlightenment values onto Indigenous thinkers before the Enlightenment. (laughs) Like, Indigenous thinkers are telling them all these things that end up being integrated in the Enlightenment. And then in retrospect, people say like, oh, it's actually some incredible time traveling ideology that's sort of forcing all these ideas onto Indigenous people. And it's a premise that only really makes sense if you think of, you know, this whole colonial process as being something that's like a blip, rather than a multi-hundred-year process, where people actually got to know. Know each other and talk to each other about these things. In the 1500s, you have Cortez interacting with these democratic indigenous structures. In the 1700s, you have Candia Aronk talking to people about the structures of Wendat society and criticizing Europe. And then in the 1850s, you have these racists invent the term noble savage to criticize people who take indigenous ideas seriously and to say that to take what they say seriously is contemptible. A lot of the way that people think and talk about this is still caught up in these colonial discourses that were invented to dehumanize and degrade people. But like, there's no such thing as a savage.
0: Yeah, noble or otherwise.
2: There was people, there was people in America with rich political lives, and this isn't pre-literate people, this isn't pre-agricultural people. Like, we shouldn't be defining these cultures by this sense of a process that inexorably leads in a certain direction. They were people who were sometimes noble and sometimes ignoble, like all of us. And there were people whose brilliant ideas were stolen from them repackaged under a guise of Western exceptionalism, and then used as an excuse to violently dispossess and genocide them. Maybe we should retire this myth of the myth of the noble savage. For really concerned with the simplification and dehumanization of indigenous peoples, both in the past and in the present, maybe we should listen to these indigenous critiques of living in the way of money, of destroying our planet. Because to do so isn't to put indigenous people on an unreasonable pedestal, is just to give them the basic thing that they've been denied for hundreds of years, which is status as peers who have something to teach us, like everyone, about what it means to be human.
0: Oh, gee, look at the, I can't believe we've been talking for so long. We're almost at my stop. I get on after you and get off before you, so. Less commute than me, so lucky you. Yeah, it's it's funny. There's always a part of your journey that I don't have access to. I don't know what it's like. I'm never there for that part. It's uh.
2: Yeah, and I don't know. There's a lot. I mean, we just meet on the train. We're like train friends. We work in different fields. I don't know what goes on in the entirety of your world either, come to think of it. What I always find with a commute, what you got to do is just find ways to use the time you read, you talk to someone, or you listen to a podcast. You know, it takes up part of your day, but then you do have some real freedom within that, to some degree, even self-actualize and stuff. I mean, not that commuting is ideal for everyone. I'm just saying, if you do commute, there's ways to make the best of it, and that's what I try to do in that last 10 minutes.
0: Well, maybe one of these days I'll stay on until you get off and then go back in the other direction so I have 10 minutes by myself but better get going or i'll miss my stop nice talking to you as usual always enjoy these chats
1: Wow, yeah good chat we've done a lot of uh, debunking
3: there must be something we've forgotten to debunk Oh, I know. The state. Right, yeah.
2: Where does the state come from? Is that when you get too many hunter-gatherers together? Where does the state
3: come (laughs) from? This is really important, because really this is where you come up against some hard teleology. you know, there's a natural tendency to look around and think, well, whatever institutional form is prevailing at this particular moment in time that I happen to have been born into, somehow it must be inevitable, it must be natural. And to think otherwise uh, is difficult. You know, it means you have to actually step outside your immediate circumstances, you have to consider other possibilities. And usually, uh, historians and social scientists get Trained to counteract that tendency, you know. Otherwise, it becomes impossible to do genuine history or social science. We just end up telling kind of parables and just those stories about how capitalism and the modern nation state are the end of history. But it's surprising how often even scholars who are trained in those fields fall into the trap of teleology. Yes, you know, the world today is covered from end to end with mostly capitalist nation states. So they find it necessary to somehow explain this as the inevitable outcome of thousands of years of social evolution. But it creates all manner of problems. For a start, there's been a terrible confusion in the academy about actually defining what a state is, especially for people who want to extend that discussion back to things like Shang China or the ancient Inca or Egypt, actually there is no universally accepted definition of the state which applies to all those things, which is kind of worrying, you know, given that most of us live in them. It's been allowed to drift into the realm of things that are somehow beyond explanation or beyond definition, almost sort of mystical in the way that Hegel or Hobbes, for that matter, would have seen it. And this isn't A, very scientific, uh, and B, it means when you come to study the origins of this thing, that you don't really agree what it is. Inevitably, it's a bit of a fool's errand, especially when you start actually comparing societies and political systems like ancient uh, Mesopotamia, uh, ancient Egypt, the classic Maya, and you realize they're actually all based on completely different principles. In fact, there's a very simple explanation, isn't there, for why European-style nation-states are ubiquitous in the world today? Right? And we all know what it is. It's simply for the last few centuries, Europeans went on a kind of very focused, quest. <laughs> a very, very focused, very ruthless, systematic uh, project of imposing them on everybody else. And in history, you know, like in science, you're meant to go for the most parsimonious explanation, the least convoluted one, right? And it's a lot easier to say that than to try and come up with some incredibly complex account about how over thousands of years, you know, somehow, weirdly, people independently, inevitably, all over the world converged on a single system of government. And as we show in the book, it's also just not true. North America is a great example. You know, before the arrival of Europeans, clearly that's not what had happened. Uh, Actually, what we see there is almost the exact reverse of that spurious logic, which is supposed to end with the origins of the state. In fact, there was something that vaguely resembles most people's understanding of an ancient agrarian state. Around the 11th to 13th centuries, Of our era. And its epicenter was at a place called Cahokia in what's now East St. Louis on that bend of the Mississippi in in Illinois. So it's famous, you know, it's a famous site. It's got these great earthworks and pyramid mounds, elaborate burials for the ruling classes. There's even evidence of human sacrifice. But by the time Europeans show up a few hundred years later, Indigenous populations had completely abandoned the site and everything it stood for. The whole regional system that was built around it had been dismantled. And instead, with very few exceptions, most of the population of the Midwest and the Southeast had moved into kind of polis sized republics. Governed on communitarian principles. So
2: you have what looks like the start of what you'd expect to be the beginning of your conventional state coming up in the United States. And then a record that shows Mm -hmm. that partway through, people decided or something happened and they were like, actually, screw this noise. Let's try something else.
3: Yeah. It's interesting in relation to arguments like those which Jim Scott puts forward in his book. Uh, I don't know if you've read that one, Against the Grain. You know, Cahokia was a a classic kind of grain state in that sense. You know, it's all based on maize farming, an agrarian economy, but it doesn't follow the pattern of the Eurasian. I mean, Scott's book is mostly about Mesopotamia and China but mostly, let's say, Asia or Eurasian civilizations. And as long as you stay within that Eurasian frame of reference, the pattern does look quite unilinear, you know, one-dimensional. But once you step out of it, particularly into the Americas, where you do have a fairly, well, it's, it's kind of like an independent point of comparison. Obviously, there was movement across. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a population in the Americas. But all of that happened tens of thousands of years earlier. And so at the point we're comparing, you know, before, let's say, the pre-Columbian era, uh, you can actually look at those two land masses, or three if you want to count South America as a separate one, and say, well, look, here we've got examples of societies that did embark on that particular trajectory that created cities and things that we today recognize as states, kingdoms with an agrarian uh, economic base. But then moved away from it and went in a totally different direction, which is why when Europeans do show up in the regions we started talking about, the Great Lakes and what uh, anthropologists refer to as the Eastern Woodlands regions, they encounter all of these societies with these incredibly sophisticated and developed political cultures that are all based around communitarian values, what we probably describe as egalitarian, although they didn't actually seem to place that much emphasis on equality of wealth. But societies in which people were free to basically disobey commands. You know, even those who had chiefs like the Huron, Wendat, those people could not simply order other people around. There was no way in which one could turn material inequalities into that kind of coercive power, which by implication means if you want to change something or get something done or galvanize people into a particular project, it has to be by some other means. And this was widely described by missionaries, traders and travelers who were not necessarily very uh, well disposed to the indigenous people they were encountering, but begrudgingly accepted that in many ways they had developed skills of persuasion, debate, oratory, argumentation, even democracy, that were the envy of people who considered those things. I mean, there weren't many people in Europe at the time, I think, who would have considered those positive values But that's what they describe are societies that have effectively developed these arts of living together. And the picture that we get from a lot of those accounts, particularly by the 19th century, is that uh, those facilities which they had for debate and keeping hierarchy under wraps were somehow innate or natural, or as we went back to right at the beginning of the discussion in those kind of evolutionary schemes, were just a kind of side effect of their technological simplicity. Well, actually, what archaeology shows today, and anthropology, is that it's quite the opposite. Actually, those societies had a very complex history, which ultimately does go back to Cahokia and the whole massive regional system, what they call uh, Mississippianization, which is a terrible piece of archaeological jargon for the spread of Cahokian values, Cahokian culture over an enormous area. And it does go all the way north to the Great Lakes and all the way south, down to the southeast. And um, actually what you see is over a period of centuries before Europeans invade the Americas is basically a process of rejection and reconfiguration of these societies that did have that as part of their own history, as part of their own legacy. There was a very hierarchical past. And it's interesting that in the oral histories of groups like the Osage and the Cherokee, there are actually echoes of this time when, you know, we were governed by these tyrannical priest kings who abused all their power. So we all got together and disposed of them. These kind of stories are quite ubiquitous, and it seems entirely plausible to us that there is a historical basis to them, at least in their broad outlines. So far from looking at people who are sort of innocent uh, children of nature, you're actually looking at people who have developed a very sophisticated Republican, if you like, uh, ethos based on their own history, on their own experience.
2: Right. Yeah. Instead of being like nature babies that just naturally want to hug everything, they actually are like hardened political experience, people that are like, hey, you let these guys take control, they're going to be huge pricks. Like,
3: We know what happens. That's right. I mean, this has been one of the key debates in anthropology for a long time. I mean, a lot of anthropologists who did fieldwork with groups who had what came to be characterized as this kind of egalitarian ethos kind of suspected that something like that must have been going on. Most famously, Pierre Clastre, the, the French anthropologist, whose fieldwork was mostly in South America, in Amazonia, he wrote a book called Society Against the State about these Amazonian groups, which uh, strangely, given what was then known about their history, which was not very much, strangely seemed to have developed these incredibly effective internal mechanisms for suppressing hierarchy. So the question was always, well, how did they do it? You know, if they, if they had no experience of the state, how did they design a form of society that seemed to be almost entirely devoted to ensuring that nothing like that ever happens. What's so exciting about the present moment and what was so exciting for me about uh, working with David Greber uh, on this project for more than 10 years is that for the first time ever, we're actually getting to the point where the history and the archaeology can actually meet up with the more interesting kind of ethnographic and anthropological accounts. So we can begin to actually address some of these questions on the basis of evidence, rather than just speculating, rather than just guesswork. And that's incredibly exciting. And it brings into view this whole new picture of world history that we're starting to see now. Amazonia is an amazing example, and it's kind of tragic in a way because a lot of what's being uncovered, particularly in Brazil, is not happening because of archaeology. It's happening because of massive deforestation and the destruction of these ancient tropical environments and the populations who historically lived there. But what's been coming out, both through that kind of destructive process and through more scientific kind of archaeology is that actually those regions, you know, Amazonia was like supposed to be the last preserve of these supposedly uh, innocent examples of humanity in its original condition or whatever. Uh, None of it's true. I mean, what we know now. Is that actually there were very sophisticated, large scale, and quite hierarchical societies in those regions, too, going back hundreds of years before the arrival of uh, Europeans? We have evidence of enormous trade networks, roadways, towns, even cities. And There are similar surprises popping up everywhere now because the technology, for example, there's a a technique, uh, it's an imaging technique called LIDAR, which is used for all kinds of different things. Archaeologists have picked up on the fact that it actually allows us to see below the forest canopy. So this is uh, images which basically project through the, uh, the plant coverage and allow you to see ancient landscapes, which it would be impossible to ever reach through conventional survey or excavation. But with this particular technique, you can do it. So lo and behold, areas like uh, Yucatan or Tabasco, In Central America, where we knew there were cities, pyramid mounds, and that kind of thing, but all we know about the surrounding areas was basically covered in either swamps or dense forest. Now we can see that actually, underneath the forest canopy, thousands of years earlier than we suspected, there are already enormous, very carefully planned monuments, even cities where people didn't suspect before. So, our whole picture of the demographic scale and the organization of these societies uh, is changing.
2: Well, yeah, and I was super shocked to hear about like Poverty Point and some of these examples of these like super large sites that I just Mm -hmm. had never heard of before.
3: No, I mean that that that's a really odd one because I mean that's been known about forever. But there seem to be so many conceptual obstacles. I mean, not all of the evidence that we talk about is that recent. Some of it's been around, you know, kicking around in the literature and in specialist journals for a very long time. But for some reason, nobody seemed to be doing the work of piecing it together and actually saying, well, what are the implications of this? You know. And I guess that's partly what we set out to do.
2: It seems like human prehistory was filled with a lot of different potentials. That there was a lot of different mm. things that people tried, that there was different directions that they went, that there wasn't this sort of like ladder of moving up some series of predictable things that they were actually having discussions about what they wanted to do and then
3: sometimes reforming their society. Yeah, isn't it strange? <laughs> isn't it strange that that's surprising to us? You know? I mean, why well, how do we ever think they weren't doing this. <laughs> I I <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's really, really peculiar, but th- this is the way that most so-called big history or grand narrative is, is written. As if these people were were basically not people, or not, not people like us. You could have a conversation with, or we could have conversations with each other. Uh, it's kind of bizarre. There's this sort of sense
2: of like early humans as these simple automatons. They don't have much of an internal life, and they're just going through these sort of mm-hmm. like naturalistic processes. Of oh, okay, now there's enough of us, so now one of us has to become the leader and start threatening Mm -hmm. us. Okay, now we've discovered agriculture. So, you know, naturally, we're going to take 30% of this grain as taxation and start uh, like, but it's, it's, it's all this automatic process. It's not mediated by people having conversations, having experiences being like, Hey, that last leader was a jackass. Let's never do Mm -hmm. that again. And it just makes perfect sense that that's the way that history would be shaped.
3: I mean, maybe it tells us a lot about ourselves, but it doesn't tell us very much about history.
0: All right, boy, it's time for your bedtime story.
2: Ray, yeah, I love stories. Woo!
0: I appreciate the enthusiasm, boy, but it is time to start.
2: Woo! Story time!
0: This is actually the story of the dawn of states and markets.
2: States and markets?
0: Yeah, but actually even bigger than that, I think I have to first explain where people come from, because states and markets come from people. So if you look around you and you see all this great technology we have today, look, there's your video game consoles, the scooter that you drive around the block for fun. Oh, yeah! All these gadgets. When you look at all this great stuff, just first you need to understand that it all comes from the market and it comes from the state. We didn't always have this stuff. We used to live in simple times.
2: Papa, when you say a long time ago, do you mean like 12,000 years ago? That's or right. 200,000 years ago? Right. Or Actually, yes.
0: Three million years ago? Basically, the t- when I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about everything before agriculture. So before that, it was all like this.
2: That time period, nothing happened? Well... We were just in a static state? I
0: wouldn't say nothing happened, I would say the same things happened over and over again. Now, there's actually some disagreement about whether those simple things were extremely violent all the time, like a sort of war of all against all, or very simple but in a way that's more peaceful, where they were all equal, a perfect harmony, like a wonderful Edenic period in human history. We're talking about 200,000 years of... Oh, I know what you're going to ask is, which one do I think it is? Your papa is kind of a centrist. I think that they were extremely violent and extremely egalitarian in a simple way for both of them. Does that make sense? What sort of
2: evidence do we use to make these claims?
0: Well, you see, boy, when Christopher Columbus and the other explorers came over to the New World, they actually encountered some people who didn't have this technological progress that we did, basically a remnant of this pre-12,000 years ago period. And you know, they all met together at Thanksgiving, the very first Thanksgiving in fact, and they shared stories and learned of the ways of the native people of the Americas at the time. and. They give us a window into how people lived back then for that 200,000-year period.
2: Papa, that's an ahistorical anecdote that doesn't reflect at all the history of colonization. Indigenous people of North America weren't living fossils or remnants of the Neolithic period. They had a complex political culture which was passed on and developed over generations. I can't assume that they're representative of some sort of state of nature, that more representative of another path that we could have taken.
0: Boy, but you're getting distracted, okay? Just before humans had agriculture, we wouldn't be able to store the resources necessary to have complex social organizations like that. So when people are in a state of nature without technology, they have simple experiences and simple minds. But see it, that civilization the human brain evolved sorry
2: yes the human brain evolved mostly like 200,000 years ago or more so I don't think that people who live outside of our society had simpler minds look boy it has nothing to do with the teleological direction of society the way that you're trying to make it out it's an odd argument
0: Boy, you're just not getting this here. Maybe I'll quote Francis Fukuyama for you, which is that as little bands of human beings migrated and adapted to different environments, they began to exit out of their state of nature by developing social institutions.
2: Dad, there's like at least a 90,000 year gap between humans venturing out and the development of these social institutions you're talking about. It's... It just seems like prejudices, you know, masquerading as facts or, or masquerading as laws of history. That single sentence reflects like a hundred thousand years. How is that our entire story of such a long period of time? Like, do you realize how long a year is? Dad? Oh, that's so
0: cute. You know, when you're a boy like you, a year really does feel like a long time. But once you get older, we're
2: talking about a hundred thousand. Well, 000, you're really Dad. stepping
0: on my story here. The moral of the story, to quote- Nothing happened! To quote Jared, For 90,000 years! To quote Jared Diamond, boy, Alas, for all you readers who are anarchists and dream of living in a world without state government, your dream is unrealistic. You'll have to find some tiny band or tribe willing to accept you, where no one is a stranger and kings and presidents and bureaucrats are unnecessary. So what he's saying, boy, is that if you want to live without states and markets, find an existing hunter-gatherer band and go live with them. Go live in the woods, boy, with your other anarchists. The friend. idea that boy, inevitably they're...
2: small groups are non-hierarchical inevita- and markets. large groups are inevitably hierarchical, that doesn't make any sense. It's if obvious. you don't
0: think markets are inevitable, boy, then why do we have records of shells and necklaces and bones um being found thousands of miles away from where they originated. They must have been using them as money to trade. There's evidence. You were looking for evidence. Well,
2: all you're saying is that you just personally can't imagine an alternative to markets as to why these things would have been moved around. It's tautological. It's like, oh, markets are universal, therefore these must be markets, and it's then more proof that markets are universal. The truth is probably a lot more interesting, Dad. Like It could be that they move with traveling healers or entertainers, or they were lost repeatedly in gambling, and that's just scratching the surface. I mean, I don't think we should project things from our current society back on the record like that. It just seems like a recipe to make mistakes. It'd be like in the far future, you know, there's like some sort of alcohol cult society, and then they looked back on the breweries that as they found from they our were, current though. era so to that, be like, oh, this know, is
0: the first alcohol cult. Right. They'd be wrong if they assume that about us, but obviously it's different because they didn't have all the technology but technology doesn't make
2: you like smarter like people were... could decide to not explore technology they could even have good reasons not to they could have <laughs> the... traditions based around like the amish
0: you know <laughs> the, the mind of a boy the mind of a boy uh, you know just it's so naive and innocent and unself-conscious what you're saying it's kind of like early humanity the way that how you're...
2: racist is it to say early humanity when you actually mean the indigenous cultures of the 1600s and 1700s. That's not early humanity. That's almost contemporary. Well,
0: this similar stage. Society has developmental stages. It's a racist projection. At, mm, okay, obviously this isn't working as a calming nighttime story like I hoped. Is there is there a different story you want me to read? Maybe Transformers or Pokemon something? Can you tell you, me the
2: story of the revolution in 300 AD and Teotihuacan?
0: No, no, no. We won't be learning about that that's not uh that's not a coming story at all complete projection too it's not even a true what
2: about similar stories from china and 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 from mississippi no
0: that's how much sugar did you eat with dinner with how about a blues clues would you like a blues clues story
2: yeah here's something i need
0: steve from blues clues to help me figure out why are we continuing to use these
2: larger mythic structures of history that we've been deploying for the last few centuries that just don't work anymore and are actually impossible to reconcile with the evidence, especially when the consequences of doing so are politically disastrous and impoverish our sense of history.
0: Just please go to bed, please.
2: Returning to the the big scale question about the right questions to ask, what are the implications of all this?
3: I anticipate we'll get a certain amount of whinging and complaining along the lines of, oh, well, you've taken away our nice story and you haven't given us another one And we were so attached to it. But in a way, that's exactly our point. You know, science has actually advanced now to the stage where you can have, if you want it, a, a much more accurate and sophisticated understanding of what our species history was really like. And hey, ho, you know, big surprise, it doesn't look like the Garden of Eden. Uh, what it does look like is actually incredibly interesting and actually a lot more hopeful, I think, than these kind of dismal tales of innocence lost, you know, and so on. Um, I mean, it turns out that, as you were pointing out earlier, early human populations were in many ways far more conscious of alternative social possibilities than we are today. So I guess if I had to, if you force me to come up with some grand generalization about human nature, based on all this new evidence that's now at our disposal, it would have to be that we are essentially a a kind of playful species, which somehow got stuck in a rather deadly game and seemed temporarily to have forgotten how to change the rules. But really what history teaches us is that to do that, to change course, create society in a different form, isn't some kind of unusual privilege. It's actually what makes us human in the first place. And as far back as our scientific evidence leads us into our own past, we find this to be true. Wow. Yeah, that it's
2: such a beautiful idea, the concept that to change the way that we live is not some deviation from who we are and what we've done, mm-hmm. but it's actually, it's more sort of the rule of history. And And we've, in our current society, we're actually acting sort of bizarre and not Reopening the possibilities of change. That reminds me of something else that you talk about, actually, too the three fundamental freedoms. Do you want to talk a little bit uh, about that?
3: Our argument, one of our arguments, I mean, basically, we found we had to invent a whole bunch of new concepts for the book because one of the reasons that the old kind of evolutionary schemes haven't gone away is because they were actually kind of elegant, you know, bands, tribes, chieftains. You won't find an archaeologist or an anthropologist anywhere in the world who actually admits to believing that stuff anymore. But the fact is, people still use the terms, they put them in scare quotes, and anyone who's not a professional anthropologist or archaeologist just kind of assumes that that's what most of history was like. And so we felt it was important to put something else in place to start that process. I mean, it's way more than anything we could manage by ourselves. But just to begin that process of, it's really a descriptive process, just a way of classifying these other patterns that seem to be closer to the evidence. Like, you know, what do we call an egalitarian city? You know, we don't really have a language for that. The language we do have is, is, is a very loaded language, democracies, republics, the term civilization, it's all got a certain baggage attached to it. So So one of the things we came up with, which seems to encapsulate some basic features of societies that haven't been essentially trained into obedience the way that you and I mostly have been, is that there are three kind of elementary forms of human freedoms. First is simply the freedom to move away, escape your surroundings, knowing that you will be received at your point of destination valued, taken in, cared for. Uh, This is what makes possible those great culture areas, those kind of hospitality zones that I was describing that we see before the creation of cities and after. So that's freedom number one, freedom to move away. Freedom number two is the freedom to disobey arbitrary commands, arbitrary authority. Again, knowing that you're not going to be ostracized or kicked out of your community or thrown into jail, but that you're going to be taken seriously, debated, and so on. And based on those first two freedoms, the third freedom, which is simply the freedom to remake social relations in some other form or to move between entirely different forms of social reality, so basically to kind of tear a hole in the fabric of what we consider to be society and create it again in some different form. These freedoms seem to have been very widespread and very common among a great number of human societies, and if we've lost anything across the, you know, the broad sweep of human history then it's not equality, because that doesn't seem to have ever existed. It's something more like this sense of creativity, the freedom to explore, imagine, and then make other kinds of society possible.
0: We now go to a elementary school deep within the city core of Wrongtown, where a group of misfit students are being taught by an inspiring teacher how to enjoy learning for the first time.
2: And that's why 2
1: plus 2 equals 4. Wow! <laughs> wow. Oh, it's amazing! Tea. It, it make learning fun! I knew
2: it did, <laughs> but I
0: didn't understand
2: why. That's the end of math period. Now we're going to be moving on to reading time. So everyone open up your bags. I've got my book here.
0: What is that? You're yeah, reading. teacher, what are we can you can respect reading? our intelligence,
2: teacher. We'll be able to grasp the concepts. It's great. It's called The Dawn of Everything. It's a book that takes anthropology and archaeology to make sort of an argument about Here one sec, I think it's to make more sense if I write it out. So here's one group of humans, and here's another group of humans, say they are on other sides of a river, right? And the people on the other side of the river, they're like, oh, they do things this way, they wear hats this way, like we don't wanna be like them. And so as a process of doing that, this is called schismogenesis, where culture comes from differentiation. It's kind of like a dialectical process where people who live in neighboring communities define themselves by not being like each other things are created by splitting. Splitting is a generative force towards cultural development in different directions. So like they say this could explain why groups of people who were neighbors wouldn't take on all of each other's practices. And they give specific examples on the west coast of North America where there was both more egalitarian and more hierarchical indigenous societies and saying that they define themselves sort of in opposition to each other's politics.
0: So it's a book about how people develop politically by differentiating themselves from other people. No, no,
2: it's about history, like schismogenesis, it's not just something that happens in a moment, it's something that happens over time, so you have like differentiation between different groups. Developmental trajectory is based on people reacting to each other. And something that sort of complicates these arguments is that there's anthropological records of very seasonal modes of organization where like different human societies split between very different types of organization and like when winter versus summer, some even where they have different names at different times of the year. And looking at that in contrast, it makes our society look very stuck in comparison, but also like the question of where human beings come from culturally and evolutionarily, but more like where do the questions and the ways that we talk about who we are and where we come from. Come from. The question of where does inequality come from? There's a bunch of different potential answers of where inequality comes from. But the real question is why do we ask that question instead of a different question? Like, why do we assume that there was some fall from equality at some point? And so they propose, among other things here, I'll write it out three fundamental freedoms the freedom to reject orders, the freedom to leave, and the freedom to remake your political life, to create alternatives. And they're saying that in a lot of human history, we've probably had these three freedoms, and in the current day, we don't because of the existence of the hierarchical global order. But also the questions of like, where does the hierarchical global order come from is complicated. There isn't really commonly used definitions on like what a state is. So they propose three elementary forms of domination, the control of violence, the control of knowledge, and charismatic power. So like the social hierarchies that can form through persuasion and charisma. And Then those three things can be institutionalized into the control of violence into sovereignty, the control of knowledge into administration and bureaucracy, and the control of charismatic power into heroic politics, either through military leaders, political leaders, elections. These three things in institutional forms are part and parcel of the modern state, but we find a variety of examples in different communities through the archaeological and anthropological record where only some of these criteria are fulfilled, where you have, say, for example, bureaucracy without charismatic politics or vice versa. Uh, so this provides, they say, a potential lens to look at the development of different types of hierarchical administration and in, in the state. Although they say that the state doesn't really have a clear origin because the state isn't really a clear thing. Basically, I guess the big argument is that human history isn't as rigid as we typically say it it was maybe a more playful process, it was not set in stone. Humans and proto-humans are cousins within our evolutionary trees. There's a lot we don't know about them, but it seems that we've had a very playful history, we've tried things out. Presumably, you know, over the course of human history there's been thousands of varieties of ways of organizing ourselves we can no longer access that didn't leave any footprints on the historical record. We tried out farming for a long time before anyone committed to farming. Uh, We tried out leaderships and hierarchies on temporary basis for a long time before we tried institutionalizing them. The real question is, why did we get stuck in one way of being instead of others? And how do we lose our ability to access these fundamental freedoms? And the answer seems to be through these systems of control.
0: Wow. I feel like I got some of that. Yeah, you gotta read the book, It's and you're gonna probably have to
2: read it, like, multiple times in order to remember all this stuff. So if you want to copy this down for your own notes off the board before I wipe it off.
0: That's wild. Are all adult books that dense and interesting?
2: I gotta say... They could put this quote on the cover of the book. Not all adult books are this dense and interesting. Signed, teacher.
1: Yay! Yay. I'm so Ooh. inspired Ooh. to learn. Ooh.
0: Teacher Tommy. When me I to first
2: read. came in here, I couldn't read her as good as I can now. When
0: I grow up, I'm going to become an archaeologist and anthropologist. <laughs>
2: That's awesome. Well, this book was an amazing read. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show to talk about it and to write this book. I found it mind blowing. And I, I won't blow too much smoke up your ass. But I think it's like, <laughs> really, really great. When I was reading it, I was like, holy crap, this is the way that people are going to start talking about the past and the future. Like I felt like you were really laying out the case between the lines of little things I'd heard over time and little things I was like this doesn't seem right. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't know, it's just an amazing book. Anyone interested in this subject matter should definitely read this book. I just wanted to say that because I really, really appreciate it. It's, it's rare that I find I've read a book where that I've had so much thought provoked by it. And even just like unrelated, like one of the things that you mentioned is the movement of people around the world mm-hmm. and how we think of people as moving kind of very slowly. And then so I was looking at the out of Africa map and I was like, why were people in the Middle East for 50,000 years mm-hmm. but never went to Europe? <laughs> um, like, wh- how does that make any sense? It's like a three week walk. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not an easy walk, but it's a walk people can do. And 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 then, so I'm Googling around. I'm like, oh, there's evidence actually that they were there 6,000 years earlier from this year. And I was like, well, it really...
3: You can do it. Well now on Google Maps I guess you can actually see how long it would take to walk to all these places. But I mean the other thing to remember is that people have boats, you know, I mean and people look at a map and go, Oh my god, you know, how did they walk through all those glaciers? And I mean, even serious archaeologists sometimes forget to look at what's going on around the coastlines. Right, yeah. And the river
2: and we have an example of boats from like ten thousand years ago or something like that. But it seems to me if you find your first preserved boat ten thousand like boats they're not that extreme of a technological innovation, right? Like, people must have had proto-boats, they must have tried out different things at different times, that's just- That's
3: right. They got to Australia and places like that a lot earlier than 10,000 years ago. Actually, I'm, I'm thinking of possibly writing um, another book one day, which kind of takes all the principles we've been talking about, but with a more technological focus, bit like Gordon Child used to do in the 1930s or whatever. But instead of this story about how, you know, once in a blue moon, there's some great technological revolution, and then for thousands of years, we remain kind of prisoners of our own creations, which is basically the story of the agricultural revolution and the urban revolution. No, actually, what we learn is that it's the other way around. People are often playing around with technological possibilities thousands of years before they put them into practice, you know. So we have toy models of wheeled vehicles in the Americas, but as far as we know, they never actually use wheeled vehicles. <laughs> they just make little toys for their kids that show they understand perfectly well what is an axle and what is a wheel and what is a spoke and this kind of thing. So it goes back to this idea of playfulness in a way. But you know, I guess the wider point is that if people are that playful and inventive with their technologies, then why not with their societies?
2: You've spoken in the past about the potential of, of this being like a series of books.
3: It was, David, it was David's idea. He insisted that this would be the first one. And then we would do like The Lord of the Rings. You know, then this would be The Hobbit. Although, as I pointed out to him, it's a bit too long for The Hobbit. You know, this is more like The Lord of the Rings. So um, I'm pretty satisfied with, with what we accomplished. And I think it stands on its own feet. You know, it's it, it's complete in itself. But yeah. Were he around, we we would have we would have wanted to exemplify and explore a lot of these new concepts in much greater detail because it's not a dogmatic book, you know, it doesn't say this is now the new version of everything, and you know, this is the be all and end all, and you must either take or reject these concepts. It's really the beginning of something. And all of the points we make, I think, could do with a lot more exemplification and exploration, hopefully by a much larger number of researchers than, than just us. I mean, that, that would be another aspiration I have for the book. Amazing talking to you today. I
2: guess, is there any, any last notes that you'd like to share with our audience on this?
3: I think we did pretty well talking about everything that's seriously wrong. And maybe one day we can talk about Some of the things that are more right because it's not—it's not actually well. You've read it. I mean, it's not a negative book. We're not just in the business of—I mean, we do a bit of debunking here and there, but we're also searching for better questions and new patterns. And I think by the end of the book, various things do come into focus that perhaps we—we haven't talked that much about. But that could be for another occasion.
2: This is your your first interview for the book. Once you went through the whole spiel, you've done it a zillion times.
3: I'll be I'll be flat out. I'm going to be taking a three-year sabbatical when this is over. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's really my pleasure. Thank you for having me on and for helping me to get the message out.
2: Oh, yeah. Our pleasure. Yeah, anytime, as soon as you're well-rested, just shoot us an email. If you want to talk about your socks, we'll have you on because this has been so great.
3: That's very, very <laughs> kind of you. Thanks a lot, guys.
2: We now go to a carnival parade of different political forms and experiments.
0: Well, it is looking to be a beautiful day here in scenic New Wrong Town, and the parade is about to begin.
2: That's right, the streets are lined with families, ready to watch the floats, ready to watch the dancers,
0: ready to look at the enormous floating
2: balloons. And we're
0: all feeling a little bit
2: carnivalesque today, aren't we? Uh,
0: That's right. The world is turning upside down. Parents are getting disciplined by their children, servants, demanding work from their masters, and women are interrupting men, rendering their work invisible, and taking credit for their ideas. It's a topsy-turvy carnival here in Wrongtown.
2: And now it looks like the carnival parade is really beginning. Here comes the first float. Oh, this first one is great. It's a tribute to humanity. Two big rolling eyes flanked by dozens of dancers wearing dozens of different cultural outfits, all dancing together and holding tools.
0: Of course, that float is about the things that bind us. Rolling your eyes famously is found around the world from Amazonia to the Australian Outback, an almost universal symbol of disapproval. And the humans flanking the eyes, they're engaging in another universal human act, dancing to rhythm and using tools. That's millions of years of evolution at work,
2: folks. It is a veritable cavalcade of humanity. They've got tools, they've got music,
0: These are some beautiful hominids. Next up, a tribute to good fences and good neighbors. We've got a big animatronic Fisher King on one side of the fence and a Protestant forager on the other, both side-eyeing each other.
2: Of course, this is a reference to the specific dynamics of the West Coast of North America, where it seems that societies developed in opposite directions by being unlike their neighbors. But it's not just about them, it's about all of us, and the ways that we make and remake ourselves in relation to one another.
0: And of course, it's worth saying that less than 100 miles from here, there is another parade happening formed in opposition to this one, which is celebrating humanity in their own way by dressing up in medieval garb and having a beauty competition. I hate those idiots and I hate their dipshit parade. And they hate us too. Next up, it's the
2: seasonality float. You can see that each side of the float represents a different season and the people on it are dancing back and forth, arranging and rearranging themselves in different ways to represent
0: seasonal social arrangements that change in a cyclical way. And here comes the play float. Looks like we've got Play Kings, Play Farming, and Play Warfare on there. And look, over on that end, they're trying out agriculture just as a game. This amazing variety of imagination and inspiration, it's just so human. Next up, the eccentricity float.
2: This float is all about the beautiful ways individuals express themselves. We've got dandies on bikes. We've got people wearing shirts that don't match their pants. And we've got the kid that I went to elementary school with who wore suits every day, except for the one day he was dressed as a cowboy. And that is a true story, folks.
0: Now, oh, this next float is interesting. This is the revolution's
2: float. It's really kind of a mashup. You can see elements of Teotihuacan there, but that psychedelic guillotine is definitely a French Revolution influence.
0: Those are proletarians flanking either side and waving. And it looks like they have more than just a miseration, but also a sincere hope in a vision for a better future as well. Looks like we've got another huge balloon coming up behind. What's that?
2: It's a big floating Christopher Columbus getting shot
0: in the dick balloon. You know, that was supposed to be a special balloon just for the Thanksgiving Day Parade, but everybody liked it so much, we decided to use it again.
2: Now, who doesn't love Christopher Columbus getting shot in the dick? I hope that every statue of him is torn down around the world. You can say
0: that again. And oh, this is an unconventional what is that? An enormous paper mache head? It's a David Graber tribute float. I'd recognize that grin anywhere. Oh, he's eating a flower with a rainbow coming out of his head. Usually
2: our floats aren't so specific to a person but we're making an exception because he was, in a way, one of the founders of this carnival parade.
0: I think his influence is felt here today.
2: You no, know, I love that guy as much as is possible to love a public figure that you don't know personally. He
0: really changed the way that I, I see the world. Yeah, me too, me too. You no,
2: know, he had a way of stuffing more imagination into a footnote than you might find in someone else's entire book.
0: Did you know that he helped smuggle drones into Syria for the Rohava revolution?
2: And look there, around the float, it's the Play Black Block tossing Play Molotovs full of sparkles and handing out mutual aid pamphlets in his honor. That is a beautiful sight to see.
0: At that, uh, what is happening now? It looks like a paper
2: mache head is starting to burn. Is is that supposed to Look, happen? Look,
0: it's, da- it's down to the wireframe and it's absolutely full of birds who are bursting forth, flying freely in every direction. This is amazing. Now, this is just speculation,
2: folks, but I think those birds represent all the people who were touched by his writing and his advocacy. That's the seeds of the next generation.
0: It's like a whole flock of phoenixes rising
2: from the ashes. And we've just received word from the four chief justices of Wrongtown that the Confederated Community Assemblies have voted to forgive everyone's debts.
0: Now, that's good for me. I have a lot of student debt. And it will definitely piss off those people at that other parade that I fucking hate. Meanwhile, at the rival parade, less than 100 miles away. And so,
2: the winner of our strictly ranked beauty competition, with one winner and many losers, is Ah,
0: what? What's that?
2: Look in the sky. It's it's birds. Thousands of birds. Ah, they're shitting on our parade. Ah, Warming us.
1: I want peck me.
2: Disgusting. Now you stop that. Stop this that birds.
1: birds. Ah, ah, ah. Ah.
2: And so, the birds, trained to dismantle hierarchy, pecked the king in the dick until he died. And the beauty parade had their own revolution, burned down the temples, and built social housing. And human beings kept on trying new things, debating things out, and playfully created and recreated their society forever. The end.
0: Yay! Wow! Woo, that was a great story! Can you tell me another one? Can you tell me the story of Teotihuacan again?
2: Boy, it is your bedtime. No
0: bedtimes! No masters!
2: (laughs) That's my boy. Okay, I guess I'll tell you this story one more
0: time. Yay! And so the papa told that boy the story of Teotihuacan not just one more time, but many more times over and over again, forgetting to properly nourish himself and his boy because he was so engrossed in the story that he told it until they both starved. The end. And that's why I can't tell you the story of Teotihuacan again, boy.
2: Aw, but Dad, couldn't they eat and also tell
0: the story? No, the story is just too good. It draws you in, it inevitably, materially, if you read that story. And so the papa lied to his boy
2: about the Teotihuacan story, not about how engaging it is, but what happens to the people who tell it. And that's why we always tell the Teotihuacan story, because
0: fuck that guy. You shouldn't swear, papa. Oh, come on, you're,
2: you're old enough for a little swearing here, we're a liberated society. You swear too much,
0: so I'm defining myself in opposition to you.
2: Ah, come on, Get just a little ribald language for the old man, huh? Come on, I know you got it in you. No. Seriously Wrong is made possible because of the generosity of our patrons. Our sincere and deep thanks for making this show possible. And thank you, David Wingro, for coming on the show and being such a great sport. So everyone go and check out this book. Maybe buy a copy of it. Maybe we can make it the best-selling book of all time. Maybe we can knock out like war and peace or whatever it is i don't know 50 shades of gray <laughs> or something because we really barely scratched the surface here and let's all continue david Graeber's important work bye now
0: We now go to a wealthy property owner smashing his own privately owned ventilators with a golf club in front of an overcrowded hospital during the COVID-19 crisis, because that is his legal right.
2: Okay, that's ventilator number three. Okay, now on to four and five. Hey,
0: what are you doing there? Is that a shipment of ventilators for the hospital? Oh, no, no, no. These are my privately owned ventilators. I just bought them myself. You're smashing... That's pretty fucked up. That's no, no, I'm allowed to. It's totally okay. But think of all the people that you're hurting inside. That's like you're hurting them by doing this. Oh, 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 oh.
2: No, there's been a misunderstanding. So under our legal system, property is a relationship of absolute power of an individual like myself, based on how much wealth you have to buy it or obtain it, over an object. Property rights aren't a relationship between people. The relationship is between me and the property. And honestly, you, you're just some schmuck. You have no say and nor do the patients or doctors. These are mine, so I'm allowed to just smash them.
0: And I want to. That doesn't seem right. I mean, I guess, like, yeah, I could break my phone right now if I want. Like, we can break yeah, things we own. Yeah, you could just own, throw but... it on the pavement. I mean, I invite you to. It's but pretty fine. Wh- but I don't want to do that because I need my phone and people need these ventilators. Like, someone put all this work into building these. People are and dying. Put work into earning money to buy ventilators to
2: smash in front of a hospital during COVID. Yeah,
0: but you exist in a society. The idea that you could destroy your property with no regard to how that affects anyone else. It's abusive, I would say.
2: Abuse us. No, I said abusive. Abusus is the Roman legal protected right to abuse and destroy your property. Let me just give you a little more context. I think this might help you learn maybe for the first time what's going on here. So according to West Indian sociologist Orlando Patterson, the conception of freedom and property, which is the sort of dominant one in our society today, actually originates in ancient Rome. And it essentially traces back to slave law. So it theorizes that property relationships are an absolute right between an individual and an object. So that includes the right to destroy it, which is called abusus. Like so, oh. for example, with slaves, you know, it's a private matter in the home where you can murder, rape, mutilate, whatever you want in ancient Rome. And obviously, you know, slavery's been abolished, and I would never mistreat a slave if slavery was here today, personally. But that's sort of the legal order. It's actually really interesting. So you're saying you the right Roman to
0: destroy law. property comes from slave law, like yeah. and this is your argument in favor of what you're doing?
2: Yeah, yeah, so in ancient Rome, the legal authorities of that society, I mean, no matter their sort of ethical content and what they were striving for, in addition to their public lives, they would return home to an extreme sort of private domain of patriarchy and slave ownership where they had absolute command and control power over their wives, their children. And hundreds of slaves who were considered to not have any rights at all. So those slaves would do things like cut their hair and wash their feet. The origins of slavery in this context were the capturing of enemy soldiers and then bringing them into slavery as people without rights, as property. Although in many cases, you know, the slaves actually were not literally war captives, but they were still treated that way under the legal system. And that was what they were surrounded by. That was what was normal to them. You can trace a direct genealogy from that slave society's conception of property to the current day. In our current society, obviously, slavery's been abolished, and I would never mistreat a slave.
0: I'd never do that. I'm a good person. But when it comes to ventilators... It makes sense that that's where it came from. Because when you think about it, the idea that you have total control over anything, whether it be a human being or even a tool or an object that we've built in a society together... It's kind of ludicrous when you think about it because like you can do this like that's allowed under this system
2: i absolutely can
0: and you can just think of it like it's a private affair between you and your property your ventilators it just is. Play, and but it's clearly not because there's other people here in the hospital look there's another ambulance showing up wheeling a person who needs ventilation into the hospital well you don't know that maybe his foot's hurt they have one of those handheld things they're pumping oxygen into his mouth as they run with I, i'm well, pretty maybe sure he's tired. I don't even know why you're fighting on this, because if he needs it or not, it doesn't matter to you, right? You you just said that. You're going to keep smashing either way.
2: It's actually really interesting because it's often theorized that a smaller society can be more egalitarian naturally. And as you scale up, hierarchy sort of naturally occurs. But this is sort of a counterintuitive example of maybe the opposite, because these are cases where slaves that masters had absolute rights over were doing care work in the home, cooking for the family and stuff like that. And same with patriarchal relations in this context, women doing the care work in the household, but then having a patriarchal sort of authority of the household who can command and control them. It's a, very hierarchical relationship at a very, very small scale. So it seems like the origins of these sort of hierarchical relationships don't actually come from scaling up, but come from, in some cases, the smallest sort of relationships of all, the household. And that doesn't really justify what I'm doing. More the abuses thing does. But that's just an interesting thing that I learned.
0: Yeah, that is interesting, that there's this connection between those basic relationships of domination that can form between individuals and the conceptions of domination that we use as the basis of our understanding of how we relate to objects and property. It's that idea that just like you're a sovereign over something else, over other people, over the products Mm -hmm. of society, the things that we've built together, because obviously you couldn't just build a ventilator on your own. Well, you don't know that. Without a society? I, I kind of do. Oh, this just makes me think of a future society where everything might be kind of like a library. You know how like a library book you can take it out, but you can't destroy it. You can use it and get benefit from it, but you can't destroy it. You know, like because other people are gonna use the book later. There's something to that. That's a kind of property relationship that makes more sense to me than this destroying ventilator thing. Right. Well, I mean, that's why I've got ventilators and you don't. You're a dreamer, and I'm a pragmatist. Well, I would try to stop you, but then the police would come and arrest me. Yeah, it's the job of
2: the police to protect my property rights. So I guess carry on with what you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, and you have a good day. I probably won't. Do you won't. want to this take a swing? Gonna,
0: this is going to haunt me. Uh, no, no, uh, thank don't you. don't let it
2: haunt you. Oh, it will. It will. You're surrounded by stuff like this every day. You've got to be desensitized
0: to it by now. I am, but this is just such a particularly in-my-face example of it. Yeah, it's a rough one. It's hard to ignore this one.
2: (coughs) Whoa, yeah, that is not gonna ventilate anything. That is a hard-to-get part there. I'm just
0: gonna smash it. (coughs) And that was a wealthy property owner exercising his legal rights.